Hey, hey, how's everybody doing? My name is Chris Wagner. I'm the Militantomist. I'm here with OP Prayer Apostolate Master Calder. Hello, good evening. Hello. Good evening. What are you talking about? It's two o'clock in the afternoon. It's oh, I forgot. You, you have you have you have wrong time. You have you have British time. Anyone know what song this is? It's from the Anglican Norm Chady Boost uh, Society Mass for Thanksgiving. So, 2019. Uh, yep, 2019. So it should be on there. So uh, before we get started, always, always, always subscribe. Um, give me an $100 uh, super chat because why not? Um, call their call their set sell. Uh, well, apparently I did. You know, yeah. I've yeah. got to represent the Militant Thomas brand, you know. Exactly, exactly. And what else am I supposed to tell you guys? Oh, yeah, subscribe, like, comment. Um, give on Patreon if you like. Because I do daily YouTube videos on Patreon. So my patrons, they're spoiled. They get a bunch of extra videos only for a $5 patron. $10 patron, you actually get free annotated articles from St. Thomas every single day. Or if you just want that separate, you can go to my website and get the annotated Thomist. And then uh, up and on from there. So good stuff. So like hola. Hola. What, is, what does hola mean? Hello in Spanish, right? Wow. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. For, <laughs> you, guys, you, guys don't, you guys don't take Spanish in school. You guys take French, right? French or German um, uh, is that the common languages. Um yeah, Spanish is. I, I know people who have done Spanish, but it's really not very common here in England. Oh yeah, in in America, it's always Spanish. I mean, you might get like in some rich in some rich school districts, they'll do German or maybe mm-hmm. even French and some others. But usually, every single school it's Spanish. And then people, it's also a popular thing for white girls to do American Sign Language. No idea why. Really? But, yes, I don't know why. <laughs> like. <laughs> What do you, why, do you like, mean is like their, their main focus in a language? Yes, yes. They can really? just that's, take American that's... Sign Language and take nothing else. I mean, as, as, well, I suppose once you've got the uh, sort of, you know, the alphabet down, it's, surely it's quite easy. Compared to like... Yeah, I mean, I mean it, it, seems like, it seems like it's just like kind of like intuitive that you got to like... Is it, it's there, there's like, some sort I mean, of like proportionality between there's some sort of similitude between the hand motion and then the act in reality so it's perhaps it i'm arrogant hard. but isn't it is it i suppose it's just spelling out isn't it learning to spell no 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 there's is like not? there's like specific things you can do to ah, i mean some, like sometimes if it's difficult words they'll spell it out like you've never been to a mass before and seen like the the deaf uh signer person no is that thing what no, never. Wait, wait, never is that ever. is that only an American thing? That like, must I've ne- I've been to quite a few masses in my time around different churches in England. I've never once seen an interpreter. What they not haven't, even, they haven't even, like, like I've been to the uh the Latin mass almost every celebrate. almost every single almost every single church in America at least uh at least one of the uh at least one of the masses on a Sunday will have an interpreter. I mean, I, I, I've been on Sundays to um, Westminster Cathedral, never for the actual masses itself, but whenever I've actually gone in there, right at the busiest masses in the midday, 12, 12 o'clock, never seen an interpreter. That's very interesting. I, will, I genuinely wasn't, I didn't know about that. Okay, John Brev, thank you oh, for the super chat. No. How long till all of St. Segonda's of Bofa's greatest work, Dudea Trustamea, <laughs> a treatise on the Shitpostika Okanabia, gets translated? Do you, do you, uh, do you know Calder? <clears throat> well, I can't say I've ever heard of this work, Christian. Um, <laughs> this, this must be out of my sort of field of knowledge. Well, do you know... Do you know... <laughs> I, I hope I hope everybody gets the joke. Dudeo trust the mea means dude trust me. It's like bro trust. <laughs> so true. Thank, thank you for thank you for the super chat, King. I'll probably not get. Th- I only have uh, until three o'clock, so fifty five minutes. So I might not get through all the questions. But if you're a member, which is only four ninety nine a month, uh, you get basically unlimited super chats. I will answer all your questions. Or uh, if I recognize you're a patron, um, or if you put like a little P, I'll probably, I'll probably answer it. 
Uh, okay. So do you think it'd be interesting to have William Tapley of Third Eagle Books for an interview to ask him why he thinks he's a prophet or why he holds his positions? Who is this guy, William Tapley? I, I, um, I, I don't think I've heard of him before. Let's have a look. Okay, let's, let's find out. This is live in Militian Thomas research right here. William Tapley. Um, it comes up as an... Oh, oh, Michael Lofton did a... Uh, did a um, stream on him. I've not heard of yeah. him. Yeah. Yeah, he's he thinks Benedict the Sixteenth is like the new Enoch or something. Or the new Elijah. And that Pope Francis is the Antichrist. <laughs> don't 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 yeah. don't don't I, I don't I don't I don't want to know how he came to that in that Francis is the fa- oh, Francis the false prophet Benedict Enoch Trump the new Cyrus against show true king <laughs> against the Antichrist and why he thinks Protestant prophetic dreams are useful for Catholic to interpret. Oh, and it's like I got a Marian apparition going on over there. What is this? I need the scoot it. Felt like the sun is right over there. Right, beaming, beaming on there. That is that is very interesting. Okay, Sancta Maria Regina Celorum said, if Thomism is monergistic. And monergism, to my knowledge, means that regeneration precedes faith. How do you square that with baptism or regeneration? Okay, so what all monergism means is that God is the prime mover when it comes to our act of faith, or at least the preparation thereof. And I actually just commented on this text today on Annotated Thomas. So I'm going to pull it up. It's from pre, uh, it's from Prima Secundae 1... Oh, nine, article six. There you go. I'm going to share my screen real quick. It's going to show you exactly what we mean by monergism, because oftentimes people will confuse it. Because the question is, bro, mute yourself. I can hear you typing. <laughs> so the question is whether a man by himself without the external aid of grace can prepare himself for grace. And St. Thomas answers, it is written, no man can come to me except the Father who hath sent me draw him. But if man could prepare himself, he would not need to be drawn by another. Hence, man cannot prepare himself without the help of grace. I answer that. The preparation of the human will for good is twofold. The first whereby it is prepared to operate rightly and to enjoy God. And this preparation of the will cannot take place without the habitual uh, gift of grace, which is the principle of meritorious works as stated above. So the way in which the human will is prepared uh, for the for the life of grace, first you have the gift, and the gift is uh, the infused virtues. And this is called the principium quo, so the principle by which man acts. So uh, we, uh, in the life of grace, act by grace. Um, it, grace doesn't overtake the will as some sort of uh, soul acting principle, but actually actualizes and draws and uh, brings out the action of the will uh, to be meritorious and to be uh, really theandric um, or divinized or however you want to uh, give that language theosized. So there is a second way in which the human will may be taken to be prepared for the gift of habitual grace itself. And this is what in Catholic theology is called actual grace. Now, in order that man prepare himself to receive this gift, it is not necessary to pr- propose any further habitual gr- gift in the soul. Otherwise, we should go into infinity. So we don't need to say, oh, you need grace to prepare to receive actual grace because actual grace is the preparation itself. But we must presuppose a gratuitous help of God who moves the soul inwardly and inspires the good wish. So this is really what monergism is is that God is, uh, in one sense, he infuses the habitual, uh, the habits of faith, hope, and charity into the soul, the principium quo, the principle by which we act. And he also is the one that moves the will uh, towards that action, moving the soul inwardly and inspiring that good, uh, good wish by actual grace. For these two ways, do we need the divine assistance as stated above? And then he goes on to say, so really, um, this all being said, uh, when it comes to the get, the question of regeneration, and it's specifically the question of baptismal regeneration, it really has to do not with actual grace. It has to do with 
habitual grace. Because what baptism regeneration does is it infuses, uh, first it cleanses away uh, the stain of original sin. But secondly, it infuses the uh, habitual grace into the soul, that is, uh, the habits of faith, hope, and charity. So uh, when we're talking about monergism in the sense that I think you're talking about monergism, we're really talking about the fact that actual grace needs to move the soul towards um, towards acting. Whereas when we're talking about baptism or generation, we're thinking about the instrument whereby the habits of sanctifying grace are infused into the soul. So that makes sense, Calder? Makes sense to me, Christian. Okay, good. Okay, so you did Balden, God rest his soul, so that seems like a speculative sequel. What? David Baldwin. Yeah, Pope, Pope Michael. Pope Michael the Great. Will you ever make a video on the essence energies distinction in absolute divine simplicity? Um, I've already done an article on it, uh, but really most of my interest in that topic is against uh, James White and his denial of it. Not really against the orthodox. So is Calder going to die next? I, I I don't know if there's like someone watching me for the window, but I don't know what that means. <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't, didn't kill himself. Okay, so. Hey, Millicent Thomas, how do you respond to some Orthodox who claim that the current popes are heretics according to chapter two of Mortalium Animon? I have never heard that argument. Let's check out chapter two of Mortalium Animon. Uh. Oh, Mortalium Animos, I'm assuming what you're talking about by Pius XI um, on religious unity, chapter two. Okay. Um, I'm not seeing anything. So if you want to send the specific quote, I could talk about it. Mm. Oh, they mentioned stuff like JP2 kissing the Quran in his most recent trip to Canada. Oh, the kissing the, yeah, the kissing the Quran thing is. <laughs> Why don't you go ahead and make a hundred dollars super chat militant prosperity, Thomas? So true. Uh, yeah, John Paul II, the kissing the Quran. That's like a really, a really weird one because it, because he was like in Iran and somebody just handed him like, handed him a book, mm. really. And he just, uh, as a gift, he just went and kissed the gift that he was given. So, I mean, it's like, you know, yeah, I, he, I mentioned this to someone earlier, and it's, I do think St. John Paul II was a very confused and often, you know, he evidently made quite a few mistakes, but I don't think that he was malicious in any way with his actions. I think that he was just very misguided, might be a word to use. And, I think some one could say that it was imprudent for him to kiss what looked like a Quran, but in the same time, that could have been any book. I don't think it was a planned out decision for him to kiss it. It was a very sort of in the moment um, thing to do. But I, I do think that a lot of people use very... They use things like this to try and disprove Catholicism, which... Uh, which really does make me laugh because it's certainly not like the Protestants or the Orthodox have exactly perfect leaders as well and that their actions at times have been perfectly to the books. Uh, the best is when they the best is when they point to a CC and then you look at like all of the people at a CC and you see like the like the you see the Greek like a bunch of Orthodox <laughs> metropolitans. You see like the yeah. ecumenical patriarch there. It's like well. Uh, it's like, well, it isn't um, just a, you know, a papal problem or a, you know, Roman problem. Mm. So thoughts on Erasmus, uh, do you see him as a protoprop? I am not a huge fan of Erasmus. I mean, even you read in St. Bellarmine, St. Bellarmine will go off about Erasmus and be like, yeah, Erasmus, he wasn't necessarily 
he, he takes a lot of weird interpretations of things, but I mean, he, he surely did actually uh, kind of rip Luther a new one on the will. Because if you read Erasmus, it's not like he was any sort of like semi-plagian or anything. He was pretty orthodox when it came to his view of the will. I just thought it was super weird, like reading Luther's bondage of the will and like, okay, this is must be what Erasmus means. And then actually reading Erasmus and being like, well, actually he wasn't as bad as, as bad as we really think. He's making some of the same distinctions that later uh, Protestant scholastics are going to make. So I, I'm, I'm torn on Erasmus. I don't see him as a proto-Protestant at all. He very consciously did not leave the church and very consciously fought against um, the reformers. Calder, tell us about the OP Prayer Journal. Yes, I'll happily, happily do so. So uh, for those who don't know or aren't aware, I run the OP Prayer Apostolate, which is an organization which focuses its efforts on bringing people to know and love the spirituality of the Order of Preachers and the ancient liturgy of the Order of Preachers, as well as the sort of academic school, primarily Thomism, of the Dominican order. And recently, as part of our apostolate, we've started the OP Prayer Journal, which is an academic journal made up of articles relating to the spirituality of the order of preachers, or the right of the order of preachers, the Dominican right, or the theological school of the Dominican order. Some might say that it's quite a broad subject for a, for an academic journal, which is usually quite precise. But I think that almost brings a beauty to it because it means that you will or we will, when we publish our first issue, have a wide range of academic papers and articles on a very, um, very interesting topic, uh, especially if you are interested in the Dominican order. So we're looking around November time to publish the first issue um, to give people enough time to write papers, source papers, you know, get uh, sources for their um, papers, so on and so forth. But we're looking around November time uh, to publish the first issue. And if you are uh, an academic interested in submitting an article, you can go to administrator at op-prayer.com and send an email to our administrative email and we'll uh, we'll send one back. Based and true. I will be writing an article, inshallah, mm. for uh, for the OP Prayer Journal. So I think I'm going to do it on uh, theological pedagogy, defending the Dominican tradition of the commentary on the Summa as the ideal form of pedagogy. So Wonderful. It'll be fun. It's an exaggeration to say every church in America has a sign language interpreter. So true. This call there guy seems great. So true. Dowry of Mary. You guys oh, should follow wanna, that page. I want that's a really that good. Story. That's a really good page. But yeah, I, yeah, it's a bit of an exaggeration to say every church in America has a sign language interpreter, but it's very common. That's very foreign to us. In all honesty, it's. I've been. I when I was first baptized. I went to, well, when I was being formed before I was baptized, I went to a very Novus Ordo church before I went to the traditional mass. And I, I, I never saw any sort of, because I suppose at an English mass, you're more likely to have a sign language interpreter. Um, but I know I never saw that. That's re It's very interesting. Um, I'm waiting for the Latin mass sign language interpreter. <laughs> someone that could translate latin to sign language that would be very impressive chad chad latin mass <laughs> sign language okay so what is the difference between substance and a soul okay so do i have do i have that that picture that i'm thinking of okay so when it comes to a certain substance a and i'm and i'm very curious why there's the connection between substance and soul so a certain substance is that which stands below the accidents of a certain thing. So um, it's, it's really the composite of a certain thing's matter and then a certain thing's form. Uh, but when it comes to the soul, the soul is the, the form of the body, the vivifying principle of the body. Um, so I'm 
curious why there's the connection between substance and soul. OC Michael did. I thought he was a charismatic prop for a minute when I first heard of him. Oh, yeah, that guy. Um, so how does God's infinity relate to the higher math infinities? For example, the real numbers are greater than naturals, though naturals are also infinite. Yeah, great question. And Basarian definitely would be able to answer this much better than me because he is actually a math major at a really good college that will remain undisclosed. Um, but when it comes to the way in which we posit infinity in God, we're actually not positing something positive in God. We're actually negating something as existing in God. So by saying that God is infinite, we're saying that God uh, does not have any um, uh, limits of any potentialities, but is pure act. So all perfections are found in God. We're negating, uh, actually, really, we're not saying that all perfections are found in God. We're saying that no imperfections are found in God. To, to be clear, that is that is how we're when we speak about God, the language that we're using. Whereas in in mathematics, um, we speak of infinity. Infinity is a uh, is a certain positive, I, I guess you could say, um, conceptual uh, formulation of. Um, yeah, it's it's something like we're not really speaking numerically when we talk about God's infinitude. Like we're not saying God's really, really big or anything like that. We're we're negating imperfections when we speak of God's infinitude. <laughs> Do you believe that Saint Mary Magdalene, Saint Mary of Bethany, and the sinful woman are the same person? Yes, Chad, and how about you, Calder? I mean, I, I'm I'm not educated enough on the topic, but I would I would say that I have faith in the tradition of the church. And if the church so has sort of said if the church has pretty strictly said these are two different saints, then I, I believe the tradition of the church is pretty clear on there being I some think sort of difference between the two. If I'm um, if I'm remembering the debate correctly. I think the East is more liable to to separate them. And the West is more liable to bring them together. And since the Latin rite is is superior, and that is the rite of the Roman Church, um, I I affirm the the Latin tradition. <laughs> troll troll face. I, like, like I said, I I'm not too well educated on the topic. If I mean, if anyone was willing to put both arguments um, forward, I would definitely take a take a view on it because it is an interesting topic but um i'm not too sure what my view on uh, on that is okay is it theoretically possible for there to be rational aliens out there gary Lagrange suggests it's possible well you just answered your question if gary Lagrange says it do you think i'm going to disagree <laughs> but but really when it comes to the, the the state of the question um do i think it's likely for there to be rational aliens out there heck no dude the, the, the very center of all creation is found on Earth. Like, that's why it's so important to be a geocentrist, at least theologically and philosophically. Because the center of God's creation is found in the garden. Um, so it would be very weird for, for God to kind of be, like, creating a bunch of different... Uh, a bunch of different uh, pockets of, of people and stuff. I, I, I think there's definitely a difference between things that are theoretically possible and things that are actually Likely. existent. So it's yeah. like anything, and of course, you know, anything is a big word, but anything is possible with God. Now, of course, God can't say a circle is a square because a square is defined as being such in a circle, you know, so on and so forth. But I, I as much as it would be theoretically possible, I don't see at all why what why that would be brought into existence. So personally, like I said, I, I'm I'm obviously a Thomist, but uh, so true, King. No, I, I don't think it's. I don't know. What do you think of Bulgakov's take on Vatican One? Basically, he thought the whole council was rigged. Nah, dude. I I don't know. That's a pretty. I, I guess my my knowledge of 
of the history surrounding Vatican one is, is a bit uh, short because it's kind of through, like I listened to, uh, um, Dr. Allen, um, what's his last name? It starts with a C. He wrote the book with, uh, father Crean, uh, Femister, Femister, mm. Dr. Femister. He has a really good, uh, series on census fidelium on the ecumenical councils. Like each one of the videos are like three hours long. It's so glorious. I spent like a week one time at work just listening through all of those videos. It was great. But yeah, it seems really weird from the context of how Vatican one was that it would be something which was, which was rigged. It really was kind of like a, like a Jerry rigged uh, council and like they had to stop early and everything like that. But also there was, when it came to the, a lot of the, the doctrine behind it, it was, um, very well prepared. Uh, you, you see it, like, it, it just saddens my heart when, when I read all of the stuff that they didn't get to discuss at Vatican one. But I mean, if they just wanted to shove everything through, then they would have just, uh, they, they, they could have just gotten the Pope to, to just, mm. just put a rubber stamp on it all or something like that. But they didn't. Uh, Calder, what should we do to restore the church in England? Uh, that's a grand question. Um, I think the the issue is that it's not it's not a problem which can be solved on a national level because secularism is such a worldwide international phenomenon of people being you know nihilism is the new gods to most people in the modern era, and so what we need to do is in essence, fix education, bring back classical, good, faithful education so that people will believe in God's people will not be so nihilistic and almost the an issue that we sort of find is that society has very much people don't people don't believe in God's, but most people don't know why. They believe in they don't believe in God because X bad thing happened, Y bad thing happened. But that's that's less of an argument against why God exists and more of a reactionary sadness to the world. And so I think what we need to do is we need to begin by, by educating people properly so that they will understand that God is not this horrible or even non-existing being and then people will start to come back to the church you know i think it's St. thomas aquinas if i remember correctly christian he says the belief in god and i'm sure it isn't just saint thomas but belief in god is like the natural conclusion of of being you know it's, it's naturally one believes in god and it's obvious that the reason why so many people in the modern era don't believe in god is because of all of these outside effects. Now, I think what... Literally, Jules, literally, they're all brainwashed, every single yeah, one of them. <laughs> exactly. Now, I think what Jules is asking is things more related to proper, good English Catholicism, because that has... That has definitely disappeared over centuries. So, for instance, the Sarum Rite is a big thing. The Sarum Rite is such a beautiful liturgy, which is celebrated in England regularly, with, interestingly enough, but not by Roman Catholics. The only Sarum Rites that are celebrated in this country are by old calendarists and priests of the Russian Orthodox Church outside Russia. And I think the Sarum Rite could, in all honesty, be a very good tool for evangelism, especially within the ordinariate, because the ordinariate, the fruits of the ordinariate are evident. The ordinariate is incredible, and I'm very proud to be a member of the personal ordinariate of Our Lady of Walsingham. And I think that restoration of the Sarum Rite, which was um, wasn't far off in the ordinariate, I don't have a a lot of information about it, but there are priests of the ordinariate who told me that the Sarum Rite was going to be approved within the ordinariate at a certain point. 
Um, I think it could be an, an absolutely incredible tool for um, evangelizing and not only evangelizing Christians to come into communion with Rome, but also beauty. People are drawn to beauty, even if they don't understand the divinity of the mass. You see so many people, tourists, coming to churches when they go up to Rome or Milan on holiday. And it's because people, there is a natural inclination to believe in God, and there is a natural inclination to be drawn to divinity and beauty. And the Sarum Rite is such a unique liturgical service. And I think that it could truly help with the restoration of authentic Catholicism in England. But sadly, the last time it was celebrated by a Catholic priest, or at least a solemn high mass uh, that I know of, was in the 1990s or 80s at Oxford University. So it hasn't been celebrated for decades upon decades. And it doesn't look like it's going to happen anytime soon. But I do think that with the ordinaria, um, there could be some real strides towards the Sarum Rite being celebrated again within the United Kingdom. But it's just a matter of time. One's going to have to be very patient with uh, with that process. But mm. Yeah, that's actually what, what you're talking about uh, when it comes to the evangelistic uh, power of beauty. That is a lot of my argument for scholasticism. Is mm. Because what scholasticism really does uh, apologetically is it shows the the supreme harmony of certain doctrines of the Catholic faith with other doctrines of the Catholic faith. Because that's actually traditionally one of the marks of divinity for sacred scripture is its intrinsic harmony. And in that same way, scholasticism gives us that uh, the marks of divinity when it comes to the teaching of the church. Mm-hmm. It's supreme harmony and fittingness with, uh, with both the scriptural account with itself and then also with nature. Yes. Okay, so uh, Pope Pius the Eleventh tells us in Mortalium Animos that there are those who hold different religions and yet will piggyback off of commonalities in order to attend conventions slash meetings. Pius the Eleventh then condemns this as an idea no wise to be approved by Catholics, and that those who do approve that distort true religion and are even abandoning the divinely revealed religion. Um, hey, uh, here is what they're referring to regarding the Pope Francis trip to Canada and the kissing of the Quran. Yeah, you shouldn't go to ecumenical meetings. <laughs> it's really as simple as that, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, I, yeah. I'm not all against uh, ecumenism to a certain extent. I mean, Pope St. Pius X uh, approved in his pontificate the Molina's conversations with the Anglicans. But there yeah. is definitely a big difference between, um, well, I'm sure uh, you may have heard of Father Gomez de Poor, who was an American traditional priest who was ordained before the council and continued to say the traditional mass after the 70s. And he was a professor of canon law. And one of the really interesting things that he said is that there is Catholic ecumenism and schizophrenic ecumenism. These were the two distinctions that he used. Yeah. Good ecumenism is sitting down, table chairs discussing communicating good ecumenism bad ecumenism is that of almost seeming accepting of false religions and that's where we definitely have to be careful um but i do think some ecumenism can bear good fruits certainly um yeah yeah, I I agree with you there. I would love to sit down and have some ecumenical meetings. I mean, like I I just um, some people found some pictures actually uh, from from my trip, but uh, I do study uh, theology with Protestants, and I had an intensive course, and um, and during the they they knew I was Catholic. I knew they were Protestant. Um, we we were we were learning stuff together, um, and where we disagreed, we uh, we tried to hash it out and, and 
and argued, but ne neither of us were under the impression that the other one wouldn't have the other one burned at the stake where mm. uh, the ideal government of the other one be. <laughs> did you ever have a Canterbury cap as a seminarian, Christian? Uh, what did you say? Uh, Canterbury cap? No, I did not. Oh, you I, did, I did. I just, I just uh, wore the cassock. Oh. <laughs> we're going to have to fundraise you a uh, Canterbury cap. Uh, yes. Okay, uh, favorite video editing software to use? I'm lame, I just use iMovie. Really, do you? I didn't know that. Yeah. What, what, what do you use? Well, for my videos, well, my videos are quite simplistic. Whenever I've done my little liturgical study videos, I use a software called HitFilm 4 Express. It's just some free editing software, but it, it, it's quite basic. Um, but I quite simply record... I write a script for the video, record paragraph by paragraph, get images. And it's really as simple as that. The, the whole bulk of making my videos um, is actually the writing of the script rather than the the editing. The editing only takes about an hour. Um, yeah. In all honesty, I have had to re, you know, re-record um because there's a lot of Latin sometimes mixed within the English of my liturgy videos. So there have been times where I've been like, duh, 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 and of course I have to restart because it's meant to sound like a video you can listen to about like going, oh, dear me. <laughs> oh man. Dang, I got a lot of, a lot of questions to go through. So if you, mm. uh, 20 minutes, uh, make sure you guys, uh, if you really, really want an answer to uh, super chat that baby, but otherwise I'm just going to plow through. So who do you think is going to be the next Pope? Do you have any idea? I haven't even been thinking about it, to be honest. Um, see, when people ask this question, they're either expecting the answer they want or the realistic answer, right? And yeah. sadly, you know, in an ideal world, I'll be like, oh, yeah, you know, Cardinal Seurat's going to come in, get rid of the old, you know, the new right, bring back the old So right. true, so true, King. And, like, Bishop Lefebvre, and it's just... So true. Know, it's like these things just sadly just aren't going to happen. Now, there are two ways that I see this happening, right? It's either going to be we get a conservative pope because the cardinals have sort of got a bit tired of the last pontificate, or we're going to get a very liberal Pope because, well, that's how Rome works at the moment. So I honestly, I, I think Cardinal Targley is definitely up there, which is something that makes me want to throw up to say, but I, you know, I, I, uh, I do think there's a real possibility that he could be the next Pope, which would, um, which would cause grave scandal amongst a lot of Catholics, sadly. So I think we have to um, pray for the current Pope and certainly pray for the next Pope because uh, yeah. it's it's not going to be an easy conclave. I think there's going to... You look at all these videos of, uh, you know, when Pope Benedict was elected, everyone was cheering. I think there's going to be a lot more anxiety around the next conclave. I think it's going to be less cheering and exciting and uh quite a lot of anxiety hope um no despair though we can't we can't ever let ourselves get to that point of course okay so how many archangels are there father ripperger suggests that there are billions but Raphael and tobit suggest there are seven with three of those being named Billions. I have I have no idea, but billions sounds sounds more based. So, billions. <laughs> I honestly, honestly have no idea. What, what, what verse? In, what what uh, verse in Tobit would that be? After what, whatever Dewey Ream says is correct, Chad. It's true it's for many such cases. Uh, I still don't know how all these Catholic Bibles are ordered with all their apocryphas. Okay. Okay. Book of Tobit, Dewey Reams. 
Uh, if somebody could find that for me. Um, the apocryphal Tobit. No, uh, uh, lol, not apocryphal. Get get trolled, get wrecked, owned, destroyed, debunked, get destroyed. What in the world? Why isn't any of these? Uh, are you sure you're thinking of Tobit? Because I don't remember reading that section in Tobit. Somebody mentioned also <clears throat> Revelation 8. Or the apocalypse eight two. So honestly, I would try and help, but my no, that's seven. That is seven angels of the churches. At least I think that's what it's going to be. Um, no, 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 that isn't. And I saw seven angels standing in the presence of God, and there were given to them seven trumpets. Ah, there's no commenting on the verse. Darn you, Dewey, Dewey Reams. I guess we'll never find out. Yeah, it's near the end of Tobit. Okay, eventually I'll I'll find it. I still have a lot of questions to answer. We need to find one you need to answer. I need to go to the bathroom. Um, let's find something you can answer. Oh no! <laughs> there you go. We'll call there and publicly sing the. How do you pronounce that word? I've never. Akathist. Akathist to King Charles the First to emphasize his devotion to the ordinary. Um. Christians don't leave me. Um, okay. I'm, I'm going to have to say no. Um, I'm going to have to say no on that, that topic. Um, the, the, the whole Charles I devotion within the Catholic Church is one that I... I don't understand, really. Um, now... I don't know an awful lot about it, to be perfectly honest with you, but I know that there are quite a few Catholic monarchists that I know personally um, who are involved with it. Um, but I, I, I honestly don't know all that much about the society. I think it's the society for the... The society of... Charles, Charles the First, the martyr. Um, I think it's considered, um, which is fascinating, really. I mean, it, it, if uh, anyone would be willing to sort of explain why there's a devotion to him, I would be interested. Um, but no, I, I uh, I'll emphasize my devotion to the ordinariate in a, in another way. Um, for now. <laughs> Am I going to get cancelled after that answer? Uh, no, absolutely not. I, I, absolutely not. So, Crossville Engineering, do you see a similarity between the doctrine of destruction most Baptists have, uh, e.g. latent flowers and purgatory? The Baptists believe God inflicts punishment to turn their body over and save their soul. Huh. I mean, yeah, I guess. It just seems like a very underdeveloped version, which... Usually that's what you'll see, interestingly enough, in a lot of Protestant uh, doctrines, is you'll just see a less developed version of Catholic doctrines. It's really weird. Okay, since God contains all perfections with no limits, yet he also enjoys his creation, sees it is good, does this mean that seeing God won't take away from creation and won't make us see it as boring? Uh, yes, 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 because there's uh, there's what's called the primary and the secondary objects of the beatific vision. So the primary object of the beatific vision, that's the essence of God. But in the secondary objects of the beatific vision, because God contains all perfections of creation as uh, efficient, uh, final, uh, efficient and final cause, um, an exemplary cause too, then uh, in, in seeing the cause, we also see the effects contained in the cause. And therefore we can uh, see creation and enjoy it uh, in light of the, uh, the essence of God. Some people, uh, that guy, uh, girl, whatever, say they had experiences of God where he was more certain than their own existence or anything else. Would this be classified as, if not a beatific vision? This is a good question. Um, I know actually St. Thomas covered something similar to this. Talking about Paul going into the third heaven. Let me 
I know he, he talks about this. One of his disputed questions covers this. One man. Ah, not the Empyrean heaven, dude. We need the third heaven. Hopefully I can find this. That would be pretty lame if I can't find it. Um, oh, Rapture. There you go. Um, okay. There you go. Bam. What a king. What a king. I found it in like, what was that called? There two minutes? I'll say a minute if I... Dang, dude. You can find anything in St. Thomas's works in less than a minute. <laughs> okay, so this is uh, pre, uh, Secunda Secunde, question 175, article 3. Whether Paul, when in rapture, saw the essence of God. And that's when he talks about being taken to the third heaven. On the contrary, Augustine concludes that possibly God's very substance was seen by some, while yet in this life, for instance, by Moses and by Paul, who in rapture heard unspeakable words, which it is not granted unto men to utter. I answer that some have said that Paul, when in rapture, saw not the very essence of God, but a certain reflection of his clarity. But Augustine clearly comes to an opposite decision, not only in his book, but also in Genesis ad literum 12. Indeed, the words themselves of the apostle indicate this, for he says that he heard secret words, which is not granted unto man to utter. And such would seem to be the words pertaining to the vision of the blessed, which transcend the state of the wayfarer, according to Isaiah 64, 4. I hath not seen, O God, besides thee, what things thou hast prepared for them that love thee. Therefore, it is more becoming to hold that he saw God in his essence. Boom. So there you go. Okay. Let me see. Okay, good. Since spatial extension and quantity are positive realities, how can God lack them if he has all perfections? How do they reflect God if God isn't spatial or quantitative? Okay, that's a good question. So if you read Aristotle's categories, what you'll see is that um, any sort of dimensive quantity or spatial extension is actually an accident of a certain thing. Now, due to God's uh, simplicity, uh, God does not have a composition of accident and substance because by positing um, uh, extension and quantity, uh, secundum quid, you're having an imperfection because you're putting a certain composition in a certain thing. So uh, because God is perfect, God cannot have these accidents because that would assume composition, which is imperfection. Okay. Is it possible Adam was created with basic natural knowledge? It's in his memory or brain rather than he was infused with it shortly after creation. Well, I don't think it's an either or. Uh, theologians have historically taught since uh, it, it, it is necessary for Adam that he have some sort of basic natural knowledge, that it was a, a, a quomodum um, supernaturale or um, according to a supernatural mode um, infused into his intellect, a uh, certain knowledge that he would need to survive. Because if you think about it, um, like, like, think if you had an adult male with the with with absolutely no not like the knowledge of a baby, even a baby has like when they're born some knowledge that they actually kind of are able to gain in the womb, like when it comes to the relationship with the mother and stuff like that. But imagine if you had somebody with absolutely no knowledge, they wouldn't be able to survive. So it's fitting that Adam would need a certain infused knowledge by phantasms uh, to be uh, infused into his intellect uh, in order that he may uh, live and not just uh die okay we got 10 minutes left let's see oh man we have a lot of questions to go through um okay good so how are angels and human souls simple if there is a real distinction between their essence and existence that is to say they do not have aseity great question so the the reason is because when we say that they are simple uh, we're not positing um, some sort of absolute um, 
let, let me let me think. We're not we're not positing uh, metaphysical simplicity, absolute metaphysical simplicity, because there is metaphysical composition um, in uh, angels and then human souls. But with God, we are um, saying that there's a metaphysical simplicity. Uh, similarly, can we believe God created Adam with such deep, intuitive, and deductive capacities that he quickly deduced basic natural knowledge without needing to be infused with it or created with it? That's theoretically possible, but there is a certain dictum in theology that basically the simplest explanation wins. And the simplest explanation is to just say that he was infused with um, the natural knowledge. SSPX should be saying serum. So true. So true. I mean, I mean, it would make sense. I mean, the ICKSP, uh, they say the right of Leon, um, which is of course, really? yeah, they, they sometimes say the right of Leon. Uh, I forgot, I forget in Portugal, I think it is. So it would make sense for the sound right to be said by traditional groups in England. Um, the only thing stopping realistically catholic priests from celebrating the sarum rite is that the only available missal at the moment for the sarum rite is published by rocor and there is no well that would that, that's not um they've definitely added orthodox parts into that liturgy. yeah yeah, yeah. it would not be suitable for Roman unless use. it was you know properly researched to be used in um so home. all we all we need to do is just get a get a serum missile together, get it approved by Rome. There is one in Rome in the Vatican libraries that like an actual complete serum right missile. And I remember hearing that someone wanted access to it because they wanted to reproduce like an original um serum right missile. I don't know where I heard that, I can't remember exactly. But let's pray that someone gets access to that because that would be absolutely incredible. Based. Okay, so there's more than just scientific geocentrism. Yeah, yeah, because really, when we're talking about the the center of the center of anything, uh, technically, due to relativity, um, it is it is a bit subjective. Um, but theologically and philosophically, it makes the most sense to posit the Earth as the center of God's creative activity, and also the center of His redemptive activity as being the center of the universe. So we're actually more more so making a theological and philosophical claim by geocentrism, not really a um, per se a scientific claim. My respect for Jimmy is limited following his debate with Biz, uh, Byzantine's Godus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was, uh, I'm, I'm team team Gideon all the way. Okay. Okay. What do you make of the argument that we are bound to accept? Uh, sorry, I didn't mean to laugh. That we are bound to accept Palamas as a saint since he is on the Byzantine Catholic calendar. Yeah, that's not how saints are made. Um, the saints are made by um, the process of canonization, not by local church calendars, because if that were the case, then you would have uh, King Charles I being a saint uh, infallibly to be held. And I mean, if you want to venerate King Charles I, and um, uh, I guess I guess go for it. Uh, if, you, if you want to say everybody's bound to hold that he was a, a, a canonized saint, but that, that's just not how it works, um, being put on a church calendar. And also, interestingly enough, most of the people that make this argument uh, would hate this, but actually St. Simon of Trent was put on the church calendar for centuries and in the martyrology until the 1960s. So if you want to play that game, I'll play it. So uh, I'll venerate Palamas. You venerate St. Simon of Trent. We can do a little back and forth and uh, we can get it done. Okay. Let me see. Oh man, I only have five minutes. I gotta choose which ones I want to do. <sighs> okay, this is a good one. 
Can you debunk Mormonism in one line? Lovely profile picture, by the way. <laughs> I don't know. There's just so many ways in which to debunk Mormonism. Um, ah, here it is. The statement from, I believe it's St. Basil. Um, all that is created is not God. There you go. Okay, the angel of the Lord is the old, uh, in the Old Testament is the pre-incarnate Christ or just an angel. Some early fathers, like Irenaeus, was the first opinion, but Augustine and St. Thomas uh, won the second opinion. Uh, I, I take the second opinion just because it seems better to me. It's just just my, my, my feels says so. Okay, so how does Bonaventure's epistemology differ from Aquinas? Are they compatible? Uh, I think I think when you read St. Thomas's statements on the agent intellect, that they're actually quite compatible. Um, I, and especially also if you read in uh, Prima Secundae 109 or 106, uh, I think it's Article 5 of one of those two where he talks about, no, 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 Article 1. Uh, it's the beginning of his Tractatus de Gratiae, where he talks about um, whether we can know any knowledge without the divine help. I think the distinctions he makes there really clears the way that St. Thomas isn't like some hyper weird naturalist when it comes to the natural light, uh, whereby God illumines every man who comes into the world. Okay. So what level of assent must be given to the traditionally ascribed authorships of the books of the Bible, i.e. that Matthew wrote Matthew, Moses wrote Genesis, etc.? Well, I would say that there are certain dogmatic facts. Uh, they're, not, they're not contained in divine revelation. Some of them are, but not all of them are. But it must be, um, it's something which is necessarily connected with the uh, deposit of faith. Since one of the traditional categories for the authenticity of a book, uh, especially of the New Testament, is that it has been authored by an apostolic man. So either an apostle or one of the disciples of the apostles. So we couldn't posit that it was written a century after the fact. Uh, we just can't say that at all. Okay. Um Okay, good. So uh, Father Ripperger said in his detachment lecture that experiencing an attraction when seeing delicious food you like is disordered. It should be erased. Yeah, Deuteronomy um, 1426 contradicts that. What do you think? Um, specifically, Deuteronomy 14 has God encouraging people to satisfy their appetites, cravings every year and to rejoice and learn fear of the Lord, which is impossible if it's a disordered effect from the fall. Okay. So what he's referring to is the concupiscible uh, concupiscible, 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 I can never pronounce it, concupiscible appetite. There you go. That, that's probably right. So with, uh, I'll, I'll just call it the appetite. So when it comes to, when it comes to that appetite, um, from it arises the famous term concupiscence is the overtaking of the appetites over and above um, our rational faculties. So uh, when it comes to that disorder of concupiscence, um, yes, it is sinful. But if your appetites are um, submitted to reason, then then no, uh, it is not. So if you if your uh, enjoyment of a, a glorious hand rolled cigarette is something which is submitted to your reason, then it is it is not wrong. But if it's something which is um, over above and against reason, then yes, it is wrong. Okay, that is that is all I'll be able to do. I really have to go. Sorry, I did not answer all of your questions. I promise, promise, promise I'll do another one so I can uh, answer some of them. Anything to say, Calder, before we go? Subscribe to the Militant Thomas YouTube channel. Oh, wait. So so would you say that the invocation of saints during the liturgy isn't a second object of infallibility, i.e. Palamas? Well, it's not, an it's not an act of either the um, ordinary or extraordinary, well, the universal ordinary or the extraordinary magisterium. Um, it's a it's a certain act of a group of local bishops with writing a liturgy. Like for example, for centuries there was in the um, 
in Matins. Uh, I can't remember which. If you say it was for, but a homily that was thought to be from Jerome that denied the assumption of Our Lady. So there can be errors in the liturgy, um, if it's a, but not uh, an error in the in, in a in a certain universal sense like that. It's not universal. It's only it's something only which is um, particular. Okay, so I have to really have to go now. So I'll see you all later. Subscribe. Thank you. But also, sorry for not getting to everything. And <laughs> God bless. God bless. Good.